Welcome back. With so many episodes of The Proof dedicated to protein, my team and I decided to pull together some of the most important takeaways into a single protein masterclass. Discussions around like how much protein should we have, how much is enough, what's optimal, is increasing our protein intake, is it benefiting some aspects of health but then coming at the cost of longevity. I will say my view of this is one that is evolving. It's based on what I know today and it could change. In this compilation episode, you will hear highlights from my conversations with Drs. Christopher Gardner, Stuart Phillips, Don Lehman, Volta Longo, and Mark Messina. I can't tell you how my blood boils when I see another ad that says quinoa, the only plant that has all the essential amino acids. It's BS. They <laughs> all have all the essential amino acids. Every protein in the body is doing what we call turnover. Different proteins have different lifespans. There are proteins in the liver that are replaced every hour. There are proteins in the muscle that are replaced every month and a half. And there's connective tissue like in your knee joints and whatever that are replaced every six months or so. What is muscle protein synthesis? How much protein do we need to consume per day to support resistance training? Does the distribution of protein over a day matter? Do we need to be worried about high protein intake and risk of cancer? And plenty more. If you find this type of masterclass episode helpful, or even if you didn't enjoy it, either way, my team and I would love to hear from you in the YouTube comments. All feedback is welcome. Enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients 
that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Can I ask you a question about, I guess, <laughs> lifespan and longevity? It's become a craze, right? And I wonder, sure. um, I'm, I'm presuming... I'm sort of projecting onto you. Uh, if I was you with the research you're doing, you you could be easily left in a position where you're thinking, why are we focusing so much on extending life and not enough on vitality and getting into our later years, avoiding frailty and actually having high quality years where we we can function and do the things that we love? Do you feel like the pendulum has swung a little bit too far towards What's the next magic compound to extend lifespan while we may be at a population level at least overlooking some of the most important things that we can do to really improve our quality of life and health span? Yeah. I, you know, and even if you look at the statistics of the last few years and the average lifespan has actually gone down in the last few years. And obviously, mm. COVID's part of that. Um, you know, I, I would begin that answer by saying uh, my mom passed away a year ago at 102 and my dad passed away at 97. So <laughs> I've been watching longevity uh, and the issue of quality of life is critical. Uh, you know, I think that uh, both of them would probably say you know, the quality of their life really went down in the last few years. And if you ask them, gee, could could we extend your life another 10 years? They would both say no. Mm. Um, so I think we do need to start with quality of life. And I think functional mobility, skeletal health, there's all that. Um, the longevity data, I, I actually began my research uh career, my master's degree studying aging uh, with Arlen Richardson, who is fairly well known for aging research. And we discovered things like the changing of the poly-A tails on messenger RNA. And as they shorten, we're less able to make new proteins. I've been studying the aspect of the decreasing efficiency of muscle protein synthesis with aging. So to your point, these are somewhat in our DNA, but we can overcome that with the right kinds of exercise and protein and, and certainly flatten the curve. Uh, and I think that's the issue. We're, we're trying to change the curve to maintain the quality of life longer. I think there's some maximums out there. Is, is the maximum human life 120 or 110 or whatever? Mm -hmm. But the reality is people beyond 90 aren't particularly healthy. And I think that's where we need to be thinking. Yeah, no, it's something that I think about all the time. I, I would rather live to 90 with a very high quality of life than yeah. live to 100 but have, you know, 15 years of very low quality life and function and be very dependent on, on people around me. So I, th I think it's something that... I totally, 
totally agree with that. <laughs> worthy of thinking about. Um, so you just you mentioned there that you know two of the things that we do have control over: exercise and nutrition, and um, we can u- utilize these in um, various ways to improve our our functional capacity as we age. Are they the two big buckets? Is there anything else outside of nutrition and exercise that that influences this in a meaningful way? Sleep, stress, <laughs> fluids. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think there are a variety of things. How would I weight each one of them? Um, you know, I, I put exercise pretty high, functional aspects of exercise pretty high. I put sleep pretty high. Uh, I'm a nutritionist. Um, you know, in nutrition, the single part of nutrition that's really most important is calorie control. So you would say that in terms of, um, our functional capacity, um, and maintaining our quality of life as we age, as we've been discussing from a nutrition point of view, you'd say calorie control more important than, than protein optimization. Sure. I think one can be healthy with really quite a wide range of protein. I mean, clearly, if it's too low, that's a bad thing. Um, But there's an interaction between exercise and protein that, and also age that comes into play. The younger you are and the more physically active you are, the lower your protein intake can be, and you're pretty healthy. The older you get or sedentary, then you really need to pay more and more attention to protein. I think it would be good for folks to kind of um, understand, I guess, a bit of the landscape, the science in this area. And when I look at it anyway, and I look at lots of different studies, your studies and and other folks' studies, it seems like that researchers are are interested in in two main things when it comes to protein and muscle. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one is changes in, in what's called muscle protein synthesis. Um, or MPS, which I'll get you to to help define and 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 unpack. And then the other is changes in sort of hard outcomes, like the size of the muscle or the strength. Would that be a kind of fair summary of a lot of the research in this space? It's looking at these, you know, biomarkers sure. of of protein synthesis or changes in function and muscle size. Sure, right. Um, you know, and. I- at some level, we need to get, you know, lipid oxidation and cart and carb and glucose oxidation into that package. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, I agree. <laughs> okay. So if someone's hearing muscle protein synthesis um, or MPS for the first time, or maybe they have seen someone on social media or have seen MPS on a study before, as I understand, just in terms of muscle physiology, there's a, there's a, a bit of a, a sort of constant state of flux with, with, in muscle tissue. So there's synthesis of, of new uh, contractile proteins and then there's breakdown occurring at the same time. Can you kind of just explain the physiology here at whatever level you think is helpful for the listeners um, and how, how nutrition and, and um, exercise sort of interact with this? Okay. Um, let me do some physiology first, and then you can ask me the second questions again. Um, the first thing I think is important for everybody to understand is that 
whether you're 16 or 65, we all need to make almost 300 grams of new protein per day. Every protein in the body is doing what we call turnover. And different proteins have different lifespans. Uh, there are proteins in the liver that are replaced every hour. There are proteins in the muscle that are replaced every month and a half. And there's connective tissue like in your knee joints and whatever that are replaced every six months or so. But the, the striking thing people need to come to grips with is that about four times every year, you've replaced the equivalent of every protein in your body. So that's kind of interesting to keep in mind. Uh, if you're looking at maximum rate of growth, how much protein can you do with resistance exercise and lay down per day? That number is about five grams. And so you need to make 30 and only 15 and only five of it could actually be net gain. Okay, so that's turnover. If you look at the whole body, then about of that 300, about 25% is muscle. Muscle makes up 50% of your body protein, but only gets 25% of your turnover, okay? Where the liver and the gut and the kidney have these get 75%. Mm-hmm. In the middle of the night, your liver has to be making protein or you die. Mm-hmm. Where your muscle becomes a reservoir of amino acid. It's kind of sitting there and it's not being used while you're sleeping. And so it actually donates the amino acids that the liver's using in the middle of the night. So you've got this balance thing going on where protein in the liver is constantly being made, where protein in the muscle is only getting made associated with meals. And so there's this constant going back and forth that you referred to between synthesis and breakdown. What's in that balance? Uh, during fasting period, muscle is in a net negative, And during feeding periods, it's in a net positive. Liver's not doing that. So that's kind of an overview of what is synthesis. Synthesis is that process of making those new proteins, whether they're enzymes or structural, whatever. Those new mm-hmm. proteins you make every day. And in the muscle, particularly as we get older, is very much meal-driven. And we can get to distribution about that question later. Something else I want to ask you about measuring MPS and sort of looking at isolated proteins, whether you're comparing, say, whey versus egg versus soy or whatever it is. Um, And I appreciate getting down to this kind of um, very granular level has its role and is important in piecing this together. But how generalizable is that to how people actually eat in the real world in terms of having a a sort of mixed meal with multiple foods after they do a workout, for example? Uh, I just did a seminar with a whey conference just here two days ago. And, you know, one of the things that is important to keep in mind is that uh, in whey protein, leucine is about 12%, and in soy protein, it's a little less than 8%. So you can get to 2.5 grams with 23 grams of whey protein, or 22, and it takes 32 with soy. Um, both will have the same effect if you give everybody 35 grams. <laughs> but if you only give 20 grams, whey will have an effect and soy won't. Right. Yeah. 
And that's, I guess, relevant if you're having a protein shake. But sure, if you were having exactly. if you're having a mixed meal, for example, and it had, exactly. I don't know, edamame or something and then some other foods in there and the leucine happened to be over 2.5. If you're having a mixed meal with 45 grams of protein in it and it's a, a combination of of, of foods, um, it's not a problem. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're eating 120 grams of protein per day, it, the combination probably doesn't make much difference. If you're eating 50 grams, it probably does. So if we're thinking about the average general um, uh, adult out there who is just interested in healthy aging, they're not a bodybuilder, um, is it 1.2 grams per kilogram? Is that where you're, you're sort of currently at in terms of that's the kind of lower threshold that you would want to meet on a daily basis on average? So if, yeah, so if I was having a healthy 55 year old who's pretty physically active, you know, doing some resistance, doing some aerobic training, I usually target the range of 1.2 to 1.6 and they can kind of fall in there wherever they want, um, you know, whatever meal pattern they want. But, um, you know, can we measure the difference between one, you know, using protein synthesis, using the tools that we have, can we measure the difference between 1.2 and 1.6? The answer is no. Is, is this protein intake of, you, know, you said in your studies 1.5, but you recommend that sort of 1.2 to 1.6 as being a more optimal intake. Is that the same for men and women? Is there any evidence to suggest that protein intake would differ between gender? Not, it doesn't seem to, um, both in the young studies or in the elderly studies, they seem to translate pretty well. So I think, I think, you know, the lean body mass is sort of, ultimately you'd like to have the protein relative to lean body mass, but we typically don't know that. So it's for body composition. Um, women typically at the same weight would have a little less lean mass, so potentially they could have a little lower um, uh, amount. Uh, we did a lot of weight loss studies with women, uh, and we found that there was a real hard line at around one gram per kg. Uh, if they got below that, we pretty much lost all the beneficial effects of protein or exercise or whatever. Um, they just changed their body composition. They might lose weight, but they had the same body fat percentage when they after they got done. How important is distribution? Um, you mentioned earlier that in some of those protein studies and, and mice are eating all day, so they're activating mTOR all day. Um, now, in some bodybuilding communities, people will talk about eating six, seven meals, waking up in the middle of the night. Is, yeah. is that an example where you are overactivating mTOR? Should we be trying to get our protein in from less meals so that we have less of these kind of pulses what what do you how do you kind of reconcile all of that well i think you describe two different populations with different goals the bodybuilders um you know are trying to maximize their mass in shortest period of time uh and you know so i think higher protein intakes and you know, in, in multiple meals is a good way to go. I think that's, I think that's logical. Does, is that, is that a good, you know, prescription for long-term health? 
I'm not sure what the studies on bodybuilders are in terms of that. Uh, in terms of, of the average adult who's trying to maintain their health, uh, I go for two to three meals a day that have 40 plus grams of protein in it. That's sort of where I start. Uh, meal distribution um, when we discovered the mTOR, we discovered that um, triggering uh, protein synthesis was a key. And so the amount of protein, the amount of leucine in the meal was important. It's important to recognize that literally every study that's ever been done on that's been done with breakfast. So the only, mm -hmm. the only meal where we absolutely know mTOR is down is after an overnight fast. So the only meal that it's ever really been shown that distribution is key to is breakfast. So I, Doug Patton Jones and I ran a study that has been widely overinterpreted where we took 90 grams and the American distribution of 10, 20, 60, and we did distributed it at 30, 30, 30. And we showed that there were uh, more net protein synthesis in a 24-hour period. That has led people to say that we need an even distribution through the day. That's not what it proved. That's not really what I think it proved. What I think it proved is that 30 grams of breakfast is a lot better than 10. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What we also know is that when you trigger mTOR at breakfast, mTOR is still fully triggered five hours later. So why do you need 30 grams at lunch? So, so the idea there is when you wake up and you've been in this sort of fasted, I guess, catabolic state, that by triggering mTOR, you're, you're helping preserve muscle, you're helping prevent that breakdown that would otherwise occur if you woke up and say fasted to midday. Right. So when you wake up, you are in a catabolic muscle condition and until you have a meal that has 30 or plus grams of protein, you're going to stay in that catabolic condition. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon.
Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. The, the other idea that I see out there, um, Don, is, and you have kind of spoken to this because earlier you spoke about the fact that it's not just skeletal muscle that makes protein. There's proteins made in our liver, for example. So there's a requirement for protein over and above skeletal muscle. Um, you've also established the 30 gram sort of protein dose came from the leucine research. But there's this idea out there that if you eat more than 30 grams of protein, well, anything above that is a waste. Your body cannot use it. Um, can you help us make sense of this? <laughs> So let's think about a 50-year-old who's stable body weight. So they're not gaining or losing weight, and they eat 100 grams of protein per day. What happens to that? Um, well, it won't all be incorporated in skeletal muscle. It all gets wasted. It all gets right. – you have to burn the exact equivalent per day mm -hmm. of what you take in. So whether you take in 90 or whether you take in 160, you're still going to burn it all. The issue is you need a constant supply of the essential amino acids to keep that cycle running. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, you need, you need a constant supply of the protein to keep it running. The 30 grams, you know, the 30 grams doesn't even max protein synthesis in muscle. Uh, there was a paper by Doug Patton Jones at one point where he sort of argued that 30 was the optimum, but there's been a number of other people that have shown that when you look at protein synthesis in muscle, um, 30, again, depending on the quality of protein, it could be 25, but something around 30 triggers it, but it probably still goes up. It's a, it's a flattening curve. You don't get as big a response with additional protein, but it probably doesn't plateau until 50 or 55 or 60 grams. So I personally recommend people have 40 grams of protein at, at breakfast and get 55 at dinner. Mm -hmm. And then lunch can be 20 or whatever you want. Um, mm -hmm. So I distribute it unevenly with one fairly large meal that's kind of maxing the system and another meal that's just kind of early triggering it. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's how, you know, people, people, you know, 
every when you eat a protein, if you eat a meal that's got 30 or 60 grams of protein in it, when it comes in, almost 50% of that protein, those amino acids are oxidized in the liver and the gut before it ever gets to the blood. It's called first pass elimination. Mm -hmm. So it's always happening. So the idea that you'll hear some trainers say, well, you can't absorb more than 30. Well, that's nonsense. You'll absorb whatever you eat. It can be 100 mm -hmm. grams. Um, you can't utilize it. Well, the efficiency probably goes down as you go higher. Um, so, you know, 30 grams might be, you know, a cost benefit. You might get the maximum effect for the fewest calories. So if your issue is obesity, that may be an issue. But if your issue is I want to gain muscle mass, then 50 might, 55 might be a better target for you. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, it's the range of activity after a meal is probably 25 to 60. That in that range, you probably get a benefit. Stu, perhaps I can throw the first question at you here. Uh, I know that you're of the view that the RDA, or at least I, I believe this is your view, that the RDA for protein is actually not what would be described as optimal for the average adult. Can you kind of kick things off by sort of telling us about your thinking process here and, and why you've landed in this position? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's several things. First, uh, you know, the, the methodology that establishes the recommended dietary allowance, right? And I, I've said in the past, and some people get a little bit twisted about this, is that if we called it the minimum dietary intake, I could actually sort of walk away from this and not really talk about it anymore. But I don't think it should be recommended. And I think you should be allowed to eat more. But let me just say that, you know, nitrogen balance, like a lot of balanced studies, uh, is a flawed methodology. The flaws are well known. Uh, and yet it's still the methodology that people sort of say, well, we have the most data on this. And it's unlikely that it's going to change at this point. You know, um, I, I don't think anybody's in a real hurry to uh, conduct a series of nitrogen balance studies. I've done a few myself. They're not a lot of fun. Um, but there's an increasingly positive nitrogen balance with increasing intakes like ad infinitum, which would suggest that people are accruing protein. We know that that's not the case. Uh, and the linear model, which is the current model that, you know, the Rand and Pellet paper, uh, which is the citation classic on which requirements are based, uh, actually takes out some data points, which change the answer to the question. I don't think a linear model is the right way to look at it anyway. And when you add on top of that other approaches, and particularly the indicator amino acid oxidation method, um, and several other findings from our lab and others uh, show that, you know, synthetic rates of proteins, bloodborne and muscle-borne, uh, continue to increase even when you're taking intakes above the RDA, which implies right away that the RDA is insufficient for optimizing anabolism. So, you know, by definition, that means that the RDA is uh, insufficient. Christopher, is there anything that you'd, you'd want to, to kind of ask there or, or comment on with regards to, to the RDA and, and I guess the, the studies that are being used to inform it uh, having, having flaws? Yeah, so the whole question is insanely challenging because what is optimal? Is it all optimal for building muscle? Is it optimal for maintaining muscle? Is it optimal for preventing heart disease and cancer? And if you go back to when this was done, these nitrogen balance studies, 
I don't want to make this too personal, but I got my PhD at Berkeley, Stu, where uh, Doris Calloway and Shelley Margan in the 70s mm-hmm. had conscientious war objectors from Vietnam. They stuck them in the fifth floor, the penthouse of Morgan Hall. They locked them up in zoot suits. They collected all their shit and all their pee and all their nail uh, nasal blowings, right? And anything that sloughed off their body. And they did these insanely elaborate studies of nitrogen in and nitrogen out, which I, I wonder if was cutting edge at the time. They really are disgusting sounding studies, right? As you alluded to, nobody wants to do these again. Yeah. Uh, they lowered nitrogen intake to zero. And then they saw how much nitrogen was coming out. And then they said, is that how much you have to replace? And sort of a a really pivotal finding back then was that as they started refeeding them nitrogen, uh, they found out the body was being really efficient when they were getting zero nitrogen. So the amount they were losing, the amount of protein they were losing wasn't the amount that you needed to replace. As you started feeding them more protein, they weren't as efficient as efficient. And so they got up to this point where they said, ah, now we're in nitrogen balance. Now the amount of protein or nitrogen going in is the same as going out. And Simon, for listeners, I mean, it would be, maybe it would be important to clarify the whole reason they did that is because protein itself is challenging to monitor. But an interesting aspect is almost all the nitrogen that comes into your body and leaves is protein related. Nitrogen is in all kinds of other things in your body, but quantitatively, Protein is the major source of where the nitrogen mm-hmm. is. So it was actually kind of clever that they had this proxy and they they pulled a bunch of studies like this. And Stu, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure if I know all the details, but the time they pooled the data across different groups and put them in the uh, IOM's report, the DRIs, I think they're in the 2005 tome of protein and carbs and fats and things like that. They said, okay, here's the estimated average requirement. That was really fascinating, Simon. I, I actually get a bunch of aha moments when, when I'm trying to explain how those RDAs came about. They had a normal distribution of individual requirement that they figured out whether the systems are flawed or not, the nitrogen balance method. They had a normal distribution. Most people needed average. There were people at both ends. Then when they make the recommended daily allowance, they don't promote the estimated average requirement. That would be a loser from the beginning. So if everybody got that estimated average requirement, by definition, half the people would be deficient Mm -hmm. because they're on the top of the normal distribution curve. And so they take two standard deviations above that, which technically exceeds the requirement, okay, flawed or not, Stu, exceeds the requirement of (laughs) 97.5% of the population. And as soon as I say that, people say, oh my God, I... That's how they calculated it? I, I didn't realize that was the approach. Huh, that's really different than what I thought. I assumed they were calculating the average. So as I teach this concept about nitrogen balance, normal distribution, estimated average requirement, recommended daily allowance, I know these might be too geeky for some of you, but I'm, I'm sure some people are going to like that aspect. So let's think you know, that's the method they used. It's back in the 1970s, as far as I can recall. Uh, it's really icky. Nobody's ever going to do it again. Stu, I don't know if you get this, but when I, you know, when I'm talking about this in the class, a couple of students say, well, I'm in, I'm up for estimating my 
individual protein requirement. And then I described the method that they went through and they, I'm out. Nope, not me. I'm not doing that. And so what we have to have is proxy measures. And that gets back to how I started this whole conversation. Is it lean muscle maintenance? Is it gain? Is it sarcopenia? Is it prevention of chronic disease? So it's really a challenging question to frame how you're going to say what the requirement for protein is. Stuart, I've got a, a question for you that kind of, I guess, follows on from that. When you're thinking about yeah. the, the RDA and your, your position is that you don't think it's, it's optimal, what, what's your definition of optimal? So what are, you, are you thinking about sarcopenia or is it bone mineral density or is it function? What's the, the sort of meaningful, I guess, outcome of interest for you? And then in addition to that, with everything that, that Christopher just went through, is is the the buffer that's been added to the estimated average requirement through this st two standard deviation increase to get to the RDA is that sufficient to overcome the potential flaws in the nitrogen balance studies? Well, I, I think what you have to ask yourself if somebody's in nitrogen balance, what's the associated physiology or relevant marker that would speak to the optimization that you care about? Because the answer is there is none. Like there is no physiological correlate that's associated with being in nitrogen balance. So not even nitrogen balance can give you an answer as to whether it's supportive of optimal rates of protein synthesis. We know for a fact that when you near requirements, you get much more efficient. And it makes sense. I mean, that's how humans have survived as long as we have. So the, the premise of the method and the method itself can't give you an answer to the question. So th there's, there's two questions being asked here. The first is, what's the minimum amount of dietary protein that I need and I can survive on? And, and chances are uh, that the RDA maybe is close, but we don't know. We don't have a good method to estimate it. So, uh, you know, like I agree with Chris, the, the, the description is spot on. Uh, tons of detail in those studies, tons of you know, all kinds of data. Um, they're estimated on a group of individuals. We make the assumption that they're representative of everybody. I don't know whether everybody believes that there are 280 some odd people, which are the number of nitrogen balance points that went into the IOM report represents everybody in North American or Australian society. Uh, but it, it's, it's simply, you know, the, the method doesn't answer the question. So it's sort of a, a moot point to say, do you believe that adding two to something that we don't know is is makes it a good requirement? My my answer is you have no idea. I will say this is that estimating an optimal uh, requirement is exceptionally difficult. Uh, it could be body composition related, and that speaks to a lot of the work that we've done. It could be related to other health outcomes. And I think one of the things that you have to remember, like in North America anyway, is that the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges, which the uh, Dietary Guidelines Committee have agreed or associated with their words, good health, uh, put protein at anywhere from 10 to 35% of total energy intake. I want to so, take issue with that. Keep going, but I want to come back but, to that. But, but hold on. So, so, so that concept is inconsistent with saying the RDA because it really does flatten out the, the you know the whole argument. So 
Small point, uh, the distribution wasn't normal. It tails off to the right, but when log corrected, it becomes normal. But so, yeah, it's, sorry, Chris, you had a, you had a, a rejoinder you wanted to yeah, make. Yeah, I, I find the AMDR, the acceptable macronutrient distribution rate, a little frustrating because as I understand it and could be wrong, so happy to hear back from you, Stu, they're kind of realistically trying to think about carbs and fat. And they said, okay, so carb, oh, yeah. carbs can be Absolutely. carbs can be this and fat can be this. And if you're at the lower end of carbon, if you're at the lower end of fat, it has to add up to 100%. What's left? And it's 35%. And I, I don't think that 35% was anywhere near intentional other than math. And, uh, and I'd be, it'd be fun to get back to you on this. Oh, oh, oh I, I, don't, I don't disagree, okay. but, but, but let's be clear. One of the things that the AMDR assumes is that there's a requirement for carbohydrate. And we know that that's not true. Carbohydrate is fuel. So is fat. And I mean, there's a tiny requirement for essential fatty acids. So the only functional macronutrient is protein. So I don't disagree that 35 is, yeah, it's a ridiculously high amount. And, but it, it, it's still in there as the number. And it may be just math that it's left over, but it does suggest at least. That, you know, if you're going to say it's associated with good health, then is it or is it not? And, and you know, I, I don't I don't disagree that it's the math that's left over, but it really does hammer home the point that carbohydrate needs, quote unquote, are, are effectively zero. I mean, ketogenic dieters everywhere have shown us that's the case. So so there's a flaw in the estimation of the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges, maybe. There is. And so a funny point that I bring up for my class all the time is I, I show a bunch of distributions in class and I say, okay, here's all the ones that, that would fit that AMDR and you probably never heard of these. Okay, now here are all the ones you've heard of. Mediterranean, that's outside, higher in fat. Here's keto, that's outside, lower in carb. Here's Ornish. That's outside, higher in carbs. So all the ones that are popular that have been heard of are outside of the AMDR. So I'm I'm really not sure what purpose the AMDR <laughs> serves. I, well, it's it's like the argument about the RDA. Either either we have a target or, or we don't. Yeah. And so my position is we have no idea how much protein people require. So because the method that we're using currently is flawed. But several other methods estimate that the the need, if that's the right way to say it, or the intake at which protein synthesis of any kind of protein is maximized is higher than the RDA. Like, but definition, you can't have that and say that the the requirement is 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 correct. But again, it's it's sort of like uh, as if you know somebody came down from the mount and chiseled in the RDA as the requirement. And thou shalt never change it. So, you got know, it. I, I realize I'm I'm fighting a losing battle when I'm having this argument because all anybody defaults to is, well, I do, you know, the WHO and F, and I'm like, you know, well, you know, they're learned people, but um, we haven't had an update of that in over you know twelve years now, and, and there's been evidence since. Let's let's bring this back to the to the average person who's listening right now, and so they're listening to everything that both of you are talking about, and sure. and and here's I think this is what a lot of people are thinking. They're thinking, okay, 
should I target the RDA of 0.8 grams per kilogram or am I going to get significant benefit, i.e. achieving this optimal sort of outcome if I target Mm -hmm. and I see different numbers thrown around but I see 1.1 to sort of 1.3 grams per kilo thrown around, particularly in the discussion around um, maintenance of skeletal muscle, preservation of muscle as one ages. Mm-hmm. Yep. So my question to you is, it sounds like the the sort of outcomes of interest for you are around skeletal muscle, uh, at least mostly. And I'm interested in a couple of things here. What is the evidence that makes you, when looking at that area, think that the RDA is not optimal? And if we look at the and, and you can kind of expand on what you think is optimal in terms of protein intake. And the second part of that that I want to cover is where is the average American adult at today in terms of their protein intake? And is it above or at the level or below the level of what you think is optimal? Uh, you're right. Uh, I, I can't deny that, you know, I live in a muscle-centric world, and so I view that as, as an important outcome. But it's not the only outcome that I care about. Body composition would be important. But to the points Chris made around, you know, cardiovascular health, um, if we're talking about cancer, everything like that, you know, who wants to have a lot of muscle and, and, and die at age 60? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, that's not a, it's not a sensical approach. So, you know, without going into too much detail, let's just say that uh, in the original analysis of nitrogen balance, there were 13 or maybe it was 14 data points that came from older people, if that's, you know, whatever that is, let's say in their 70s. And they were higher than the average, but in the, you know, obviously eyes of the people that were setting the requirements, it wasn't sufficiently different. Now. Other nitrogen balance studies have been done. Some find that it's adequate. Others don't. Other methodologies put the requirement for an older person, and I don't know when older begins, but uh, 50, 55, 60, I don't know, um, at close to 1.2 as a requirement. So the question then is, if that's the basal requirement, What's optimal? And that's a tough question to answer. From what we know from muscle gain studies, if you're a weightlifter, it's probably up to 1.6. There are some people who insist that it's it's higher than that. I don't think it is. But, you know, we could, you know, I, I fight with people on Twitter mm-hmm. all the time over that one. What's the average intake um, today the, in, in, the, in America? Oh, yeah. No, for, yeah, so for the, from that perspective, and you know, Chris has made this point abundantly clear, and he's entirely correct. People are getting 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, but not older people. And, and that's one of the points that I'm making, particularly as you get older, the choice is actually a little bit less. And the choices that people make in terms of foods are away from protein-containing, and particularly some nutrient-dense protein-containing foods. And I don't think that that's, uh, you know, a, a deniable fact, uh, but Chris has pointed this out and, and I'll say this unequivocally, athletes eat a lot of protein. <laughs> and and, I, and if you, if you could find a paper that I've written where I said athletes weren't eating a lot of protein, um, then, you know, go right ahead. Cause I've never said that they weren't, but importantly, when I started doing this 30 years ago, um, 
all I ever heard was, oh, the RDA is sufficient. No, well, nobody needs any more because they didn't study athletes. They didn't study enough older people and lots of other groups. So it may well be true that the average person, whoever that is, somebody, is this somebody who's not obese? Is this somebody without type 2 diabetes? Is this somebody without, you know, name your pathology that probably about two thirds to maybe 75% of Americans or you know, North Americans are walking around with. And it's a tougher question to answer. If we are thinking about the preservation of, of skeletal muscle as someone ages. So you said earlier that as people uh, age, their protein intake is dropping off. Now, I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say that they're becoming more sedentary. And as I understand it, when it comes to the stimulus for preservation of muscle tissue resistance training is is a much greater stimulus than protein intake so my question to you is is the problem a lack of protein or is it a lack of resistance training and stimulus you know i I learned (laughs) in my undergraduate career or undergraduate degree i should say um that you know when it comes to physiology structure reflects function so how much of this problem is caused by a lack of protein as people age versus a lack of exercise? Yeah, great question. Clearly, you've been reading my Twitter feed. Uh, so yeah, I, I would never argue. Uh, exercise or activity trumps, you know, in my opinion, uh, diet, with, particularly with respect to body composition and protein, like hands down. Uh, we don't have the money or resources to do the type of studies where we control diet strictly enough to look at the effect of protein on body composition. But from an observational standpoint, older people who consume more protein uh, hang on to more muscle. Uh, they don't progress towards frailty. They fall less. Um, and, you know, much again to uh, a number of people's chagrins, they don't live shorter lives. <laughs> and so, you know, as laudable goals for an aging person, I look to, you know, some of the issues around, you know, falls, which are, you know, key, key uh, watershed moments and say, well, I don't know. Uh, it seems that there's an association with greater protein that may reflect greater physical activity. And if that's the case, then you're preaching to the converted. You, you wouldn't get me off this show without me saying that, you know, uh, exercise or activity is king and diet is queen. So, and if that means a hierarchy, then I, I, I guess I would, I would be supporting that notion. Mm-hmm. But are you saying as well, just to, just to be clear in, in elderly populations where protein intake has been assessed, are these populations consuming under that 1.2 gram per kilogram sort of target that you mentioned? S- some are. It depends. I mean, like the the frailer and the more sedentary uh, individuals, yeah, they they get you can get them below the RDA. Some of them are close to the EAR. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, you put an older person in hospital for a knee replacement or a hip replacement, and do trace studies on what they're fed in hospital or what the time they spend in hospital if they're there. Um, they consume about 0.6 grams per kilo per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there are situations where it's it's clear that people aren't meeting their protein needs, but I, I'm not saying on a population level, and, and this is where the nuance is sort of lost, is that 
there's rife protein deficiency. Mm. There's not. There's there's rife overeating of, as you mentioned, hyperpalatable foods for sure. And to bring in another perspective here, right? So as you're aging, there's loneliness, depression, issues with dentition, bad gums, bad teeth. People just aren't eating enough, right? Is it really that they're not getting enough protein or they're not getting enough calories or not enjoying their food enough? So to help some of these folks, it's not just that we would have to get them more protein. It's that we would have to improve their mood, their social lives, look at their teeth, et cetera. So I, I think it, it gets even more complex. If, if we were, Stu, to have the money to do those kinds of intervention studies, and we don't, but it would be nice. So if anybody's listening that wants to give us those, those funds, we're open. Uh, <laughs> it, there would be a number of angles to address, and protein would absolutely be one of them, but it would be one of several. No, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, aging is a complex problem and it's not solved by one thing or another. And, and you know, that's the that's the traditional grant getting reductionist type approach that's probably been oversubscribed to without trying to bring together groups of individuals to talk about complex issues like cardiovascular disease, cancer, aging, um, you know, from multiple perspectives rather than siloed ways of looking at it. I, I wouldn't disagree. Stu, you, you sort of just alluded to the fact that, that it sounds like you don't sort of buy the idea that um, a, a higher protein intake above the RDA is a concern from a, a longevity sort of perspective, an, an idea that's often put out there. I think that's what you were alluding to. Um, but there does yeah. seem to be a bit of a divide Um and this might be false equivalence and, and it may be that more people are of the view that it's not a concern, but at least online, there does seem to be a divide or a split among some of the prominent uh, experts using social media and, and jumping on podcasts. Um, some, some like Volta Longo, for example, or David Sinclair, yep. they, they certainly advocate for protein restriction, at least through, through midlife. And it seems that most of that is is extrapolations from sort of animal research where branched-chain amino acids um, or specific amino acids like methionine have been restricted in certain animals' uh, models that where they've been looking at lifespan. Would, would I be right that, that folks in that camp are mostly focused on, on lifespan and whereas yourself or someone like Don Lehman um, are – are sort of more thinking about health span and sort of mobility and how strong you are into older age. And if I am right, are you would would prioritizing skeletal muscle, bone mineral density, et cetera, is that potentially coming at the cost of extra years of life, but improving your quality of life? Uh, yeah. Uh Big question, lots of answers. First, uh, you know, the balance, and by the balance, I mean like 90 plus percent of the evidence around protein restriction and longevity comes from small mammals. There is no protein restriction study in primates. There's an energy restriction study, uh, and it depended where the primates came from, Madison, Wisconsin, or the NIH. Uh, and in one study, they lived longer, and the other one, they didn't. So that's energy restriction, which is a far more powerful 
lifespan extending intervention than protein restriction. So let me just say that uh, I applaud the science that sits around, um, you know, small rodent studies and uh, models of deficiency of certain hormones like larin dwarfs and growth hormone, for example, that are cited as examples for protein as the causative nutrient. And that, that's, I think, is a massive overgeneralization as giving rise to growth factors that restricts or, or excuse me, shortens lifespan and increases the prevalence of certain diseases. So I think it's a clever idea. The reality is when you do a review of all of this sort of literature is it's pretty gray. And we only have observational data from humans, obviously, but there is no consistent relationship between protein intake and longevity. None. And, you know, we've, we've, well, we, let me just say that two colleagues of mine and I have had a, pro, a paper in reviews that's probably been rejected from several journals. And the number of times I've talked about it, people are beginning to suspect whether it's real or not. It's real. Um, where we've looked at data uh, and using the correct statistics and all of the mortality data that are out there, there's no relationship between protein intake and lifespan or even between plant or animal protein and cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, or all-cause mortality. So, you know, I, I begin to glaze over when people talk about protein restriction as a lifespan-extending um, benefit in humans when you talk about inbred strains of small mammals that live in a cage, only consume that protein day in and day out, don't have access to a running wheel, never were exposed to a pathogen like a global uh, pandemic, never spent extended periods being sedentary where they lose muscle mass. And as you say, maybe you live longer, but you don't <laughs> live better. Um, so, you know, but, you know, Chris chuckles, but it, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the differences between those humans are an outbred species. So that for starters should give you some sort of, you know, these mice are their brothers, 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 cousins, brothers, right? They're inbred at, you know, labs for years. And, and, and we're stunned when, when they don't actually act like, well, first, you know, true wild mice uh, that are you know, real mice, uh, not in a lab, or, or human beings. And so, you know, forgive me for being a little underwhelmed by the, the level of evidence that is brought to to that question. And I, I just, I, like I stand to be corrected if, if it's, if, but my, even my own work, you know, with a couple of folks that hopefully you'll see sometime soon, uh, suggests that it's, it's just not a relationship that's there. You know, perhaps even just thinking about what we've been talking about with regards to the amount of protein in someone's diet, um, you know, if we are talking about this 1.2 gram per kilogram, which most people are already achieving, um, does the amount of protein that someone needs for optimal health change depending on the percentage of animal and plant proteins in their diet? And a key area there, it does come back to this amount. So let me start out on this basis because I'm going to diverge from this if I get to rant on this. So Plant protein quality is not as good as animal. It's not. It's, it's not missing any amino acids. So if we could please start there, 
All plant foods have all 20 amino acids, including all nine essential amino acids. And I made a fun heat map that I put in a paper in Nutrition Reviews in 2019. I can't tell you how many people have asked me for a copy of that heat map and to see if they could reproduce it, because it's pretty clear the distributions are almost identical, except beans have less methionine and cysteine, and grains have less lysine. They're not missing. They're just proportionally less. How important is that? It's actually pretty important. As soon as you run out of a specific amino acid, you just can't fake it as you're making an enzyme or some other protein structure and just substitute another one in. It has to be that exact amino acid. But let's say, okay, and so I'll try to be careful how I say this too. So let's say you needed 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, not 0.8 but you ate 1.6 grams per kilogram per day and you got it from plants, probably that extra 0.4 meant that you got enough lysine and you got enough methionine. Now, if you required 1.2 grams per kilogram per day and you got it all from plants and you got 1.2, it wouldn't be enough. You would have run out of your lysine or your methionine, cysteine first before you got to make all your proteins. So there, there is a point there about the quality of amino acids. But when we look at the data that we have, people are eating high enough quantities of protein all the time that they're getting enough of all the amino acids. Every single day, they're breaking down the extra amino acids they didn't need and they're converting it to carbs and fats. I can't tell you how many people are sort of bewildered when I, I do this one. I, I say, okay, how much fat can you store if you ate extra fat? And the answer is unlimited. Oh my God. And where? Oh, in your butt, in your belly, in your under your arms, in your jowls of your cheeks. Okay, how much carb could you store if you ate more carb than you needed for the day? Oh, very limited, like enough to run a marathon and not even quite that. You'd store it in your skeletal muscle and your liver, but it'd only be about a kilo. You can probably answer that better than I can, Stu. But the, I bring those two up because then I say, okay, now let's say you've eaten more protein than you need for the day, which just about every person I know does in terms of quantity. Where do you store it? Nowhere. There's no storage depot for protein. You have to break it all down and it carbs is the first priority. And if you didn't need any carbs at the moment, you probably don't. You turn the protein into fat. And so for this whole issue of animal versus plant protein, it's, it's relevant at some sort of low level. If you're not at that low level, it's irrelevant. You got all the amino acids you needed, and most people are able to do that, including vegans and vegetarians. And so just this idea that I can't tell you how my blood boils when I see another ad that says quinoa, the only plant that has all the essential amino acids. It's BS. They <laughs> all have all the essential amino acids. Get out of here. So that's my, I have more ranting, but I'll pause mm. for a minute there. Can I just clarify one point, Christopher? Please. Um, and I might have misheard you, but I just want to <gasps> clarify this in case anyone was confused. <laughs> uh -oh. um, you, when you were talking about, for example, legumes being the methionine being a sort of limiting amino acid, and you spoke about 1.2 grams or eating a bit more than 1.6 grams, I just want to clarify something. You're not saying at 1.2 grams per kilo, if someone gets all of that protein from plants, that they would fall short 
in methionine unless they were only eating legumes as their sole source of nutrition versus a diet that was providing a range, a diverse range of plants, some that have uh, a greater proportion of methionine. Okay, so if you wanted to make, if you want to try to oversimplify it, let's say all your protein for the day came from beans and you required 1.2 gram per kilogram per day and you got 1.2, it wouldn't be enough. Okay, what if you complemented it with grains, which actually are a little high in methionine, even though they're low in lysine, it still wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be quite enough. So plants together, even when you combine them, never make up the full complement of amino acids that animal foods have. It's, it's not the perfect distribution, but you wouldn't be very short. It's not like you're short in a huge way. So you would have to eat 1.3 grams per kilogram per day or 1.4 if it was all plants. And the, the reason that I thought Stu and I were agreeing on email one day was it's kind of moot because most people eat 1.4, 1.5, and it just doesn't come up. But if you really did get them really close to that level of individual requirement, you would have to pay attention. But most people aren't there. Okay, so let me ask you a question then, because within the kind of plant-based community, there are some doctors, and I'm not going to name names, that the advice is just don't worry about protein, just eat enough food. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that message is okay? Or do you think people that are eating plant-exclusive diets should be at least protein aware? Nope. So I think that's correct. So thanks for bringing back to 30,000 feet. As long as you eat a variety of foods in your diet, I think you're going to get 16 to 18% protein and you're going to be way above whatever your individual requirement is for total. And you're going to get all the amino acids you need. And let me make that even more practical because as I've been giving a protein rant at some medical conferences that I go to, I started asking sometimes a group of 500 physicians say, okay, how many of you have vegetarians and vegans in your practice that you look after? And almost everybody raises their hand that they've got some. And then I say, okay, can any, anybody raise their hand now who has ever treated any of them for a protein deficiency? And no one raises their hand. No one's ever raised their hand as often as I have asked this question. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure if they would recognize protein deficiency if they saw it, because it likely wouldn't be isolated. It would be in the in the context of someone who had other nutritional issues. But it's pretty funny when some of them in the front row assume, oh, there must be people in the back of the room that are raising their hand that have vegans that they've had problems with. And they turn around and see no one in the room has raised their hand. And somehow that's an aha moment. So one of my latest mantras is simply stop obsessing about protein. Stu, anything to add there? Uh, you know, one of the things that fascinates me is you can go all over the world and every culture has figured out that a grain and a legume pair are the way to eat your protein. That suggests that there's a teleological lesson in pairing those proteins. And it must have been that, you know, when food supply wasn't abundant, and remember, that's the last, you know, 100 plus years of our existence as human beings. Uh, that when a stress came around, you died. And so if you were a bean eater and you, you know, or if you were a rice eater, probably, uh, which was in abundance, you, you just didn't make it. 
So it's only under stressful times where you're going to see something that's, and I mean famine, uh, sickness or something like that, or your protein intake is very low. So, uh, you know, Chris makes a valid point. We've just got to stop saying that plants are deficient or insufficient um, in certain amino acids, particularly when people eat the type of diets that they do now. So, and, and again, you know, I think you may have heard me say this on other podcasts, but this is something on which my opinion has changed. You asked me 25 years ago when I first started, exactly like Chris, I'm like, no, animal proteins are higher quality. Uh, they've got more essential amino acids. They're more digestible. And I'm beginning to think that that's less and less. In fact, for the most part, it's a non-issue. So I don't know about the obsession around protein. I don't think anybody's deficient. And I, I again, I come back, is it requirement or is it optimization? Difficult questions, hard to answer. But, you know, let's just stop, you know, the 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 rhetoric that plant proteins are that it's just, you know, and, and, or plants contain compounds that are trying to kill you. And I, you know, I, I get it. That's, <laughs> okay. That's yeah. a little extreme. Well, but, but you can, you, I mean, you can pick anything now on Twitter and there's somebody out there that's at the degrees with you, right? So, sure. But, you know, it, it's a tired, worn out narrative. It's, it's just, and, and it's wrong. Yeah. The, if plants are trying to kill us type rhetoric is, is interesting. I, I think if, if they are trying to kill us, they're not doing a great job. I know that we're, we're, coming close to the the end of this one and shoe's got to dart off let's finish with satiety um often when protein is spoken about the other thing that comes up is well it, it can assist with weight loss it can help uh someone feel fuller on fewer calories um so i'm, I'm interested is protein king when it comes to feeling sated um and therefore great for someone if they're wanting to lose weight I'm in or I'll wait, Stu. Your Can turn. I go first? Yep, your turn. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a satiety expert, uh, like not by not by a long stretch. Uh, I'll say this. Uh, I've had the privilege, pleasure of speaking on lots of protein programs. I'm usually the exercise guy. Um, and I've, you know, followed or listened to Rick Mattis, Marguerite Westerterp, uh, Harvey Anderson, who I think are pretty good satiety people. From a macronutrient perspective, they'd agree that protein is the most satiating. Is it the only uh, player in satiety? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I, I know enough to know that there are lots of other, um, you know, satiety uh, signals, stomach distension, so water, fiber, et cetera. Uh, I think I saw in Chris's email, he wanted to talk about Robert Rolls's uh, sort of theory in this and volumetrics. and. I'd be the first to say that, you know, personal experience and in Chris has got far more experience in weight loss trials than me, than me um, that they're, you know, multitudinal, multitudinous factors, of, you know, contributing to society. Mm -hmm. Christopher, do you want to comment on that? And I think something just, just to add into that is in addition to protein, how important is the, the sort of texture or the volume of, of, of the food or drink that that protein's coming from. Um, just thinking about it myself, for example, a kind of pea protein shake in water for me, although it may provide 30 grams of protein, is not very sating. Right. Yeah. So drinking is never very satiating. So it's much easier to drink your calories than to eat them. 
if you look at some of the literature on this, as Stu suggested, I feel like it's kind of all over the map. Protein is satiating, but fiber and the water retention you get there and the distension you get, that's satiating. And fat delays gastric emptying as it floats to the top of your stomach. So fat is satiating. And we never eat protein, fat, carbs alone. We eat them in combination. So I was, I've always been really impressed, and I've cited this one paper often, and it is just one paper, but it was Barbara Rolls being very clever, and she made a casserole in six different ways. And the casserole looked the same to everyone, and as much as they could, it tasted the same. And, the, and she had, I'm, I'm going to guess this is students. I think this is how she does most of her, her studies. She had students come in on different weekends and they would eat something and then they'd, they'd monitor satiety with these visual analog scales or how many calories they ate later in the day. And the casserole had 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35% protein. It varied across an incredibly wide spectrum. And the participants ate the same number of calories at every level of protein. And they were asked to eat until they were sated. So I thought that was just fascinating. And just in terms of comparison, are those studies hard to do? She did another really clever one where she had two variables she was manipulating. And one was energy density and one was size that you could see visually. And she had multiple servings of these things on plates. And there were two energy densities. One was high and low. And for the low energy density, that basically just means it was the same dish, but in, it incorporated more water. And so it that water diluted the number of calories, right? And then for the volume, they just served larger and smaller portions. And what they found was if they did four weekends in random order with students, again, I think they ate something like 500 calories less a day for almost either one alone. And when they put them both together, they ate 800 calories less for the day and said they were similarly sated. 800 calories a day. And so... When I look at these things that say, yes, protein is satiating, if you eat this way, it will make a difference. I'm going to say kind of back to Stu, maybe it makes a difference sometimes, but I actually think other factors play a much larger role than the protein. And having said that, I will say, if you take the standard sad American diet breakfast of breakfast cereal with refined grain, added sugar, multicolored marshmallows, orange juice beside that, plus a piece of white toast with some jelly on it, basically carb on carb on carb on carb on carb. And instead you had eggs and bacon and sausage, you would be more full on the eggs and bacon and sausage. But what was the comparison? It was a ridiculous comparison of all refined carbs and sugar. you've kind of got this framework where the the amount of protein that might be sort of you know say optimal for someone at different stages of their life may vary and you spoke about kind of low protein in adulthood up to 65 70 um, I know you wrote a paper on this with uh, Morgan uh, Levine, which I, I want to come to. I have some questions. Um, and then once you get to 65, 70, there might be some benefit in slightly increasing that protein. I'm based on my understanding and reading of your work and hearing you speak, much of that comes back 
to or it seems to these sort of growth pathways of of mTOR and IGF one, particularly this idea of sort of through through at least the the midlife having a low protein consumption. And if if someone's hearing this for the first time, these keywords of mTOR and, and IGF one, and let's say you meet someone at a dinner party, Volter, and they say, Doctor Longo, you're speaking another language. Um, slow down. What what do these abbreviations actually mean? And and for the the sort of lay person out there, you know, where are these pathways found in the body, and why are they important? What is their purpose? Yeah. So IGF one refers to insulin like growth factor one, and so not surprisingly, is the main um, f- factor in the blood making us grow, right? So we follow these little people in Ecuador and they have extremely low uh, IGF-1 and they're about three feet tall usually, right? So they're, they're born with this uh, growth hormone receptor deficiency and in, in the result of that, uh, so growth hormone basically regulates the levels of insulin-like growth factor one. So if you have a low, low growth hormone receptor, you have low IGF-1. And the other one that you mentioned is TOR, target of rapamycin. And so this is a, um, a X downstream, but also somewhat parallel to IGF-1. Um, and so TOR is also at the center of growth. And, and this is how we um, identified the TOR assist kinase pathway over 20 years ago. Its role in aging because we saw that uh, when we mutated very simple organisms, the ones that lived the longest were dwarf. It was, they became much smaller, but they, they, we could make it live, you know, three, five fold longer than the regular ones. And so, and that was a mutation in the Taurus kinase pathway, meaning we inactivated Taurus kinase, and all of a sudden these little uh, microorganisms, they could live a lot longer. So, yeah, that's a target of rapamycin. Rapamycin then, not surprisingly, is a drug that uh, ended up being demonstrated to extend the lifespan of mice, uh, and in a way that uh, I think most people will say is more is superior than anything else we've seen um, in history, right? So um, there seems like blocking rapamycin, especially if you start in middle age, uh, works better than anything we've, we've ever seen. Um, yeah, so that, that those are TOR and IGF-1. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we and many, many other, in fact, I, I almost 10 years ago, I organized a conference uh, where we brought all the top geneticists and experts in, in the biology of aging from all over the world. And we asked the question, what is the best target for to extend human lifespan, health span? And the consensus was that the growth hormone IGF-1 uh, was the very top. It's the one that got most votes. It didn't, they didn't get everybody's vote. But certainly get most votes. And uh, in, in that paper, we wrote a paper about that. And then in the paper, we actually put the votes. You know, we, we, we wrote down who was present. All the present were authors of the paper. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, yeah, so then I think that, the, yeah, the, not the consensus, but certainly the most votes go to growth hormone receptor mm-hmm. or IGF-1. Are these pathways in all tissues of the body or are they only found in, in certain cells like muscle cells or will you find sort of mTOR and these kind of growth pathways throughout all tissues? 
Tor is uh, um, everywhere, and uh, and so is uh, and, uh, I would say the IGF one is in the great majority of cells. Um, probably not all of them, but let's say the, the great majority. Uh, now they uh, in different cells and different tissues, they can have very very different effects, right? So mm. um, some. Um, uh, some cells in some moments have the job of making glucose, you know, like liver, uh, and some cells have the job of, at the same time of using glucose, right? So you can imagine how the, a brain cell and a liver cell during a starvation period uh, would do something very, very different. You know, one is trying to deal with fasting and one is trying to do its job of uh, functioning normal, as normal as possible, right? So, yeah, but then just to tell you, these this genes and, and proteins are everywhere, but they can have quite different uh, jobs depending on the state. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I feel like there's a, some kind of general fear out there around these pathways. But from, from my understanding and, and reading your work and others is that these are very, very important and they're critical. But are we talking about sort of when they become hyperactive, uh, overactive, that we see deleterious effects in, in physiology? Yes, I think a good example is insulin, right? So if you think about 50 years ago and you think of insulin and uh, you think of insulin as a very, very positive uh, um, hormone, and then, um, but then it took a while, right, to realize that uh, if you have too much insulin all the time, then you become insulin resistant, and um, and then um, you have diabetes, right? So it's the same or similar with these growth factors uh, that um, they um, um, you have to have the right amount, and um, and there is probably. Um, you know, at some point in some tissues, you might develop resistance to these growth factors, uh, but you also might develop hyperactivity of these factors uh, leading to all kinds of problems. And so um, in cancer, certainly lots of epidemiological studies and our own studies and, and mouse studies. And uh, so there's um, a lot of different types of studies, including the genetics one suggesting there is a, a, a tight link between the levels of IGF-1 and, and cancer, but also the levels of IGF-1 and lots of other problems. Um, so meaning that if you have a lot of it all the time, um, you're probably not going to do very well. And not surprisingly, people that have acromegaly, so they're born with very high levels of IGF-1. They have a short lifespan um, and they die fairly early from all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to a couple of, of things there, but just to kind of continue to kind of frame um, everything that we're discussing here, if someone's thinking, well, what causes IGF-1 to get elevated? My understanding is that it's, it's uh, the pituitary, pituitary gland produces growth hormone, which then stimulates the liver to produce IGF-1 or a lot of it anyway, is that where most of IGF-1 comes from in our body or is, is it uh, also influenced by, you know, hormones that are in our food? No, no. <laughs> most of the IGF-1 comes from 
from the liver and, uh, um, and the, the circulating. Now, IGF-1, lots of cells in the body can respond to growth hormone or even without growth hormone and generate IGF-1. But the circulating IGF-1, the, the great majority comes from the liver in response to growth hormone from the pituitary, making it to the liver and causing it, its release. Mm-hmm. And so what influences how much growth hormone we produce? Well, proteins, uh, not surprisingly, uh, are the influence number one. So if you take uh, a group of people, as, as it's been done, uh, it has been done. Uh, if you, so if you take a group of people and you put them on a, on a low protein diet for long enough, um, you're going to see the, the IGF-1 uh, in response to different cycles or cycling uh, of growth hormone, um, you're going to see IGF-1 go down, 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 down. And, um, and also, if you do fasting, like in our clinical trials, uh, um, uh, many clinical trials now, if you do fasting, uh, by day three or four of fasting, you'll see IGF-1 go down. And I think that it was um, um, the, um, there was a study where they did that and then they just fat proteins and that was enough to bring the IGF-1 back up. Yeah, the IGF-1 levels are typically lower in people following sort of plant-based dietary patterns like pescatarian diets and vegetarian diets, right? Uh, not necessarily. Um, the, um, there have been studies, I mean, lots of vegetarians and even vegans uh, they know that um, at least the, the, the ones that are, are worried about their health, they know that the levels of certain amino acids and proteins are low um, in, the, in their diet. And so they overeat. They overeat proteins. And so um, the, um, the, a lot of the vegans and the vegetarians have normal IGF-1 because they have so much proteins. Uh, now, that doesn't mean all of them. Some of them are probably uh, very much IGF-1 deficient. Uh, but in studies that have been carried out, um, the, uh, the vegans had uh, not a, a statistically significant difference in IGF-1 compared to the controls, unless they also were protein-restricted. Uh, because, you know, being aware of the problems with proteins, they, I think they were over 20% of their calories came from proteins. Yeah, which, which brings me to, you mentioned before, sort of chronic elevations being a problem. So how do we kind of differentiate between acute changes in IGF-1, say after you do resistance training or have a, a one high-protein meal versus chronic elevations. And I guess if we were to think about this with a different biomarker, perhaps we could think about blood pressure. If you do a workout, your blood pressure can go up acutely. Um, If we were just to look at that in isolation, we might say that exercise might not be that great for our cardiovascular health, um, but we know long-term it has a different effect on blood pressure or typically does. How do we we kind of think about that here with IGF-1? Yes. Well, first of all, in in the studies that looked at muscle uh, synthesis, the the protein level needed to optimize it uh, was not that high, right? It was around 30, 35 grams uh, from what I remember. 
And, um, you know, this was per meal. So you could argue that if you went twice as much and you did, the, you did two workouts with two meals, you could get to 60. But that, those studies, and it wasn't just one, suggested that 60 grams, let's say, of, of good quality proteins having the, the right amino acid profile. Uh, I mean, that study suggested 30 grams. But let's say even go twice as much. Uh, that would still be fairly low protein level right, for, for most people. And um, so, yeah, so I, I think that, um, that there is nothing wrong with having proteins and, and, and of course, building muscle. But um, the, the amount that you need to, to get there is much lower than what people think. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, our recommendation, we have two foundation clinics, one in uh, Los Angeles and one in Milan. And uh, our recommendation is to, uh, say, establish what type of muscle mass um, and get somebody to measure it. What muscle mass are you happy with? And then, um, you know, go down in proteins until you actually start losing that, right? So uh, go to the, I mean, uh, don't go below, let's say, 0.7 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, but you know, as long as you stay above 0.7 and your muscle is fine, then you're good to go, you know. And you could also argue that you're now, you know, IGF-1 and insulin actually are very similar, have very similar receptors, right? So you could, it's possible, it's not very well established, but it's possible that you could be doing the opposite. You could be maintaining the IGF-1 receptor more sensitive, right? By keeping it lower, like you keep your insulin receptor more sensitive by keeping insulin low all the time. And then, you know, of course, insulin goes up with a meal and now the insulin receptors are very sensitive. And that's what you want, right? Um, You want to have low levels of insulin, but then spike it, have insulin do its job and then get out of the way. Uh, And so probably, although this is by, by, uh, far from being established for IGF-1, but probably you have the same, uh, you can have the same uh, uh, argument for, for IGF-1. Okay, I have a bunch of questions. Um, and I think you're right. I think that there are a lot of people in the plant-based community that are aware of differences in amino acid sort of ratios in plant foods and then, um, you know, finding specific ways to kind of make up for that and i'll tell you i think in the certainly in the sort of muscle uh, hypertrophy strength um, community there's a lot of talk of of research that shows sort of optimal protein intake for hypertrophy being at 1.6 grams per kilogram and that's a threshold volta that everyone is kind of referencing out there um, including a lot of professors and, and, and science folks. Yeah, okay. Don't, don't forget, though, acute versus 110 healthy, right? Two different worlds. I, I can inject you insulin, and I can show you lots of benefits, and I can publish a thousand papers. It doesn't remove the insulin resistance later on and the diabetes that you're going to get eventually. Right? So our job is to make people live to 110. You know, somebody's job is to prepare somebody for the Olympics. Uh, uh, that's a different job, yeah. Right, so we, we, we might be talking about two different goals here, and that was kind of my question um, with regards to, let's, let's take me, for example. Um, I only eat plant protein. That's where I get all of my protein comes 
from plants. And I want to come to your paper with Morgan Levine um, because I know in there you looked at this, the, the effect on cancer incidents. Um, you went a level deeper and looked at, at protein source animal versus plant and you saw some interesting things in there. But let's, let's take me for example. Um, you know, I'm wondering, can I have my cake and eat it too here? So I'm, I'm getting all of my protein from plants but I would be consuming above the the RDA, right? And so, and I and I also fall into that kind of midlife bracket that you're talking about, where low protein you recommend. Um, do you think, for me, someone who is metabolically healthy, consuming all protein from plant sources, that consuming above the kind of RDA is is going to have some sort of long term deleterious effect on my health? The data um, suggests yes, right? So, so um, for cancer, uh, when we went from animal to plant-based, those that had more than 20% of calories com- com- coming from uh, um, proteins, uh, if it was um, animal-based, there was a 400% increase in the risk of developing cancer and if it was more plant-based it was a 300 percent uh now the the effect on overall mortality went away when uh it was uh, a plan it was uh, we were looking at subjects that were on a more plant-based uh, uh source so um yeah so then um there can definitely be uh, differences but i think that um at least the data would suggest that if it doesn't really matter if it's plant-based or animal-based, once you get so high that the plant-based amino acid profile is equivalent to that of the uh, animal-based, right? So this is probably why the IGF-1, in the papers that were published, uh, um, the IGF-1 was uh, um, returned to... uh, um, to normal levels uh, from the uh, from eating more, uh, um, you know, pro- plant-based proteins. Yeah, that's that's um, very interesting. Do you think that some of the the benefits that we see in the research, um, where we see people consuming more plant protein, is is also driven by the entire package, the the differences in saturated fat and and fiber? Etc. Yes. So um, the the IGF one and lots of markers are not going to uh, Tor, in, including Tor, are not just going to be affected by uh, by plant uh, by proteins and amino acids. Probably the, the levels of sugar, insulin, and lots of other um, factors um, coming from nutrition and maybe not just nutrition are going to be um, uh, playing a role. So. Um, yeah, so then everything matters, but certainly if you look at the studies, the, uh, uh, the proteins and the amino acids um, are, are playing the key role. Uh, methionine certainly being one of them, leucine being another one. Uh, so those leucines certainly uh, seems to be associated with levels of, of uh, TOR and methionine and cysteine with the levels of, of IGF-1. So uh, not surprisingly, plant-based uh, uh, protein sources have low levels of these, and uh, um, 
And so, um, uh, yeah, so th those are at the center of growth pathways, um, but everything else probably uh, matters. And we also knew this from, from very basic studies in yeast where we, we had the amino acids and TOR signaling goes up. But then if you had sugar, uh, that, also, uh, that also drives TOR signaling. Um, so, I mean, this is a very simple system so we can tell exactly what's happening. As you go to humans, it's very complex uh, uh, environment. It's a lot harder, but but probably that that's the case too. That uh, multiple components are contributing to uh, to uh, growth signaling. If if we thought of two scenarios here, let's let's think of okay. I used myself as an example before, so let's just use me. Continue using me here. Um, to Protein in my diet coming from plants, but consuming above the RDA more towards the level that has been shown to kind of optimize hypertrophy, which I appreciate is a very different area of science than what you're interested in here. So we, as you alluded to, we could be talking about people with very different goals. Um, so it can be hard to, to compare these directly sometimes. But if we think of, of two scenarios here, so one is myself doing – consuming that diet and not doing any form of resistance training. And the other is consuming the same diet but doing resistance training, breaking down muscle. And I'm wondering if when you pair it with a lifestyle that has that resistance training and you get that muscle breakdown, do you do you get the the leucine, you know, um, sort of activating these growth pathways more preferentially in muscle tissue? Um, or do we have any idea of with tracer studies or anything like that of looking at, okay, after you do a workout and you have a very high leucine meal, um, what percentage of that leucine goes to sort of increasing IGF-1 and activating mTOR in muscle tissue as opposed to floating around the body and potentially driving growth in precancerous tissues. Yeah, I, I don't think you want to transform your audience into, into biochemist, um, uh, but um, I, I could tell you that um, we, we did that, right? So we, in, in a cancer clinical trial in Italy, so we took a lot of women that were on a hormone therapy and um, uh, cancer therapy, and, um, and then uh, we put them on a fasting, um, uh, fasting mimicking diet together with the therapy. Uh, but then, because we were worried that this fasting mimicking diet is five days of fasting, like, uh, let's say, nutrition happened every month or so, right? So we were worried about uh, muscle, loss of muscle mass. And so what we did was to give them a, um, we give them a video where they could do muscle training. And then in between, we give them a Mediterranean diet. I argue, um, because of what I was saying earlier, I argue that the Mediter it shouldn't be a Mediterranean diet, it should be the longe my longevity diet, so that we wouldn't have help the cancer cells stay alive and grow. The doctors at the uh, oncology hospital argued that, um, you know, they, they didn't like this too much. We're going to give a Mediterranean diet. And what happened was very interesting was the, the women kept gaining muscle mass, right? So, so, of course, in that case, it was a bad, bad idea. Uh, but the training, even with the fasting, even with the, just a Mediterranean diet that was not very high on protein, but sufficient produce. 
you know, let's say moderate protein intake. It was not a low protein intake. But with the moderate protein intake, the 20 minutes, I think it's 20 minutes a day of very, very light muscle training. Um, and they kept gaining lean body mass, right? So, so that my point is that you don't need uh, you know, very much proteins um, and, uh, um, to, to, to get the muscle and at the same time get the, the, the benefits. Um, and so now our leucine is distributed uh, between muscle uh, and, and the potential target of, of cancer. I mean, that's an extremely complicated um, world that you don't want to think about that. You want to think more about, you know, the, the um, how, how, do I, I, how do I keep my protein intake and protein profile vegan and low, vegan enough, right? Because then everybody's going to be vegan. But let's say, and this is why I preach pescatarian diet, right? But so how do I keep it vegan enough and low protein enough but at the same time, get as much muscle as I want, right? These women, for example, they probably didn't even want, and that was my argument with the oncologist, right? They didn't want to gain muscle mass. They wanted to stay the same, right? So there was no reason to, uh, to give them one point, between 1.2 and 1.5 grams per kilogram a day, right? And we could have kept it much lower, and they, I think they would have stayed steady, and in that case, it would have been a much better idea. Now, if you are trying to gain muscle mass, then yeah, you could have gone to, let's say, a fairly plant-based, uh, maybe 1.2 grams. I would say that there is, I, I, I seriously doubt somebody does the experiment. And, and, and the experiment has already been done, by the way, as I mentioned earlier. So I, I don't think you're ever going to see any improvements going above 1.2, uh, no matter what, right? So, um, so, I mean, unless you're really talking about Olympic training, and maybe there is like a very specific, uh, super protein loaded, uh, um, you know, period that is going to help you build very quickly. But, um, you know, those, those studies that I mentioned before suggest that 30 grams per, per training uh, period, we're optimizing muscle mass, muscle synthesis. Yeah. Within your, your sort of overall framework and, and, and longevity, kind of lens how how important do you think muscle tissue is you know not just from a kind of strength and mobility point of view but even from a metabolic health point of view and, and being such a big sort of sink for glucose mm, not very important um in in I, I mean i think it should be important but it's but it's not in the sense that if you look at most centenarians that i visited they not so good, you know, <laughs> with muscle, whether they're Okinawans or, or Italians or, or uh, in Loma Linda, California. Uh, so I, I don't think that should be the case. I think they would probably be better off because of frailty. So if you look at the, the Southern Italians, for example, they're very frail compared to the Northern European. They live, they have record longevity, but they're very frail. The frailty is almost twice as high as those of the, the Europe, Northern Europeans. So then, um, so then the, the frailty does not seem to interfere with longevity, but it's certainly not a good thing to have because, of course, the quality of life uh, is going to be affected. So I think that, yeah, you, you probably want to uh, put more emphasis not on increasing protein a lot, but increasing protein a little bit and, and for sure increasing 
uh, strength uh, training like we did for the, for the clinical trial so that um, they could have, this, say, the strength of the Northern Europeans and the longevity of these uh, little towns in Southern Europe. Yeah, I think I think the exercise and kind of resistance training aspect and trying to do some of that in your lifestyle is something that most people um, agree on. So, just to summarize your position, it's essentially you know move your body and try and build a good amount of muscle and strength with as as low protein as possible. Would that be a fair statement? At least up to the age of sixty five. Yes. It, it, yeah. And then, um, and I think that might even help, again, keeping the IGF-1 receptors uh, sensitized so that when you do have the proteins, everything is working very well. Everything is, everything is getting built uh, correctly. Um, yeah. So they may make in the long run, in the short run, not. Maybe two grams per kilograms of protein make things easier. But in the long run, I think that uh, the sensitization is going to make things uh, a lot easier. Maybe this is why these women, they probably always had the fairly low um, um, you know, protein intake. Um, they were uh, gaining muscle mass very easily uh, just doing 20 minutes a day of exercise. Right. Okay. I, I hear what you're saying. So potentially if you're doing a high protein diet to absolutely optimize say muscle protein synthesis and hypertrophy today there there could be a trade-off with regards to what your health span is going to look at um so i i understand what you're saying there can you come back to that paper that you did that found the the kind of low protein midlife and and high protein later in in life um if someone hasn't heard you talk about that, can you just quickly summarize that? And then I, I have a question about the sort of over 65-year-olds. Yes, that paper, um, we, we basically first look at everybody and say, you know, what happens to people that have a high protein versus people that have a low protein diet? And then, uh, and, and if you look at the entire lifespan, you see absolutely nothing. It looks like it uh, doesn't matter. And then if you break it down 65 and younger, 65 and older, then you see a big effect, right? So the 65 and younger... Are, um, they, if they have a low-protein diet, they have a big, big reduction in the risk of uh, developing, of dying of cancer, and also a big reduction in the risk of dying of any cause. Uh, but then as, as we were, the database went to the 70, 80, 90-year-olds that turned around, and this is probably when you look, why when you look at everybody, you don't see anything, meaning that the 80-year-old reporting a low-protein intake wasn't doing so well at all. And um, so uh, now that group probably included people that were sick and frail and you know, lots of problems. So that doesn't necessarily mean that an 80-year-old could not have a relatively low protein intake if this person was exercising and was doing training, et cetera, et cetera. But I say overall in the United States, the people that were interviewed, they were not doing very well if they said, I have a very low protein diet, if they were 80 years old, yeah. Um, yeah, so then, um, the, uh, then we also did this in mice, and so we, we took a mouse that was young, and we put on a very low-protein diet, and, uh, and nothing happened. Um, and this was like a 4% protein diet. I mean, it was extremely low. And after, I forgot, I think at least 10 days, but nothing happened. Um, and then we did the same with old mouse, and, and that old mouse did not like this very low protein diet at all. And within 10 days, it already lost a lot of its uh, uh, 
weight. In, in the, yeah, so it was probably telling us that, and, and also from the, the database, we knew IGF-1 levels. When we looked at the uh, younger people, those that had a high-protein diet, had a high IGF-1, about uh, 250 or something like that. And then the people that had moderate protein intake, had a, in between IGF-1 level, and those that had a low protein intake had an IGF-1 level that was, you know, around 200 or less than 200. Um, but it, when we look at the 66 and above group, there was no longer any significant difference between the IGF-1 level. That means that the IGF-1 level after 66 years of age was already low to begin with. And probably having a low protein diet and driving it even lower is not going to help you. It's probably only going to contribute to frailty. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's probably, that's part of the explanation of, of what we see. But um and just quickly, you mentioned so low protein, moderate protein, high protein, those are kind of relative terms, but low protein was around the RDA, 0.8 grams per kilo. No, uh, in this case, it was calories. It was less than 10% of calories coming from proteins. Uh, moderate was between 10 and 20, and high was above 20. So if somebody had, let's say, 2,500 calories a day, then people that had more than 500 calories coming from proteins, they were in the high protein group. Mm -hmm. I think you may have just answered something that I had some difficulty reconciling from this paper. Um, what, I, what I think I'm hearing from you is that as you get over the age of 65, protein may have less of an effect on IGF-1. And because I, I, I'd sort of read your paper and spoken to people and um, one thing that I was left thinking was, if protein increases IGF-1 and elevated IGF-1 increases the risk of cancer, then why would protein all of a sudden be a good thing after the age of 65, given that age is one of the primary risk factors of cancer? So I, I, I think you may have answered that, but um, I'd be interested to, to kind of hear you elaborate on that. Yes, uh, so uh, this we showed, right? So we showed that IGF-1 does not significantly increase, uh, uh, even between the high protein and the low protein group, right? So uh, not just between the moderate and... Over the uh, age even of 65. Over the age of 65, it did not, the, 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 high protein the high protein intake group and the low protein intake group did not have a, a, a significantly different level of IGF-1. Um, but of course, now I had more nourishment, and, and, and of course, uh, um, with the high protein, probably also comes uh, lots of other um, nutrients. So, so the story is probably a little bit more complicated. And I think the argument could be that you can still be fairly low protein, um, but sufficient, fairly low but sufficient protein in the uh, at older age. And, and that may be even an advantage then, uh, but maybe not a big advantage as it was, if, as, if, as, it, as it was before. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the argument could be that if you kept at the moderate, and, and that's what we saw, right? The moderate were already doing as well as the high, right? So there was no difference between moderate and high. Uh, so it was, it was enough to be in the moderate protein intake range, between 10 and 20% of your calories coming from protein, to get all the benefits. So then that's why we concluded low protein up to age 65 and then moderate after.
I sent you a study by Gulick et al. It was looking at IGF-1 levels in three different conditions, um, post-exercise, post-protein ingestion, and then they had a combined um, post-exercise and protein. And uh, I believe this was a, a sort of crossover style thing. So each subject got a, a chance to do each of them and they were their own sort of comparison group. This study kind of interested me because I, I have always thought about whether amino acids and their effect on IGF-1, um, whether the sort of downstream effect that that could have on someone's risk of, say, cancer would be different if we we're looking at, say, someone who is sedentary versus someone who's doing a lot of resistance training and perhaps has a higher requirement for amino acids. And in that paper, they looked at 24-hour fasting IGF-1. Um, and interestingly, so the IGF-1 went up in the, the group that was uh, just post-protein. So all they did was protein um, went up by about 17% but it didn't increase in the group that did protein and exercise together. So I kind of wanted to, to get your thoughts on is amino acids and protein consumption, is the risk um, from that via IGF-1 in some way mediated by how much you move your body? Absolutely. Uh, but don't count on it, meaning that there's an experiment, right? What you just listed is an experiment. So then when you're talking about proteins, you have to think about, you know, in a year, what was your average amino acid uh, and what was your average IGF-1 in the year, right? So how many times you exercise? And so, yeah, the experiment is done a certain way and it's looking at a small window. Uh, you have to look at, you know, it's kind of like the, the idea of the A1C. So A1C is not just representing your, your fasting glucose. It's representing three months or, or so of your of your glucose levels, right? Yeah, so then uh, what is your average uh, IGF-1 when you have, let's say, you know, you eat 150 grams a, a day of proteins? Uh, what is your average amino acid level, right? So these amino acids, they give an opportunity to, uh, independently of IGF-1, by the way, to push TOR, and to push AKT and other growth signaling pathways. Um, so yeah, if you have lots of opportunities now, you know this one. One of the opportunities could be a precancer cell that is about to die, and all of a sudden it gets enough of this amino acid to activate BCL2. BCL2 prevents apoptosis. Next thing you know, you gain another mutation, and that's your death sentence, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to make it very dramatic, but uh, but. But yeah, so you want to give this up, you want to reduce this opportunity on average all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't count on on, uh, on that. I would just say, I would turn around as we already discussed, you know, what is the lowest level of proteins that you can take to get the muscle that you need, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, so that's, that's a good way to go. Also, because protein have a lot to do with fat accumulation. And they seem to uh, promote, um, you know, fat uh, increase, right? So, um, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't want to say too much because we're about to publish on this, but 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 uh, uh, yeah. So there is a number of studies now suggesting that um, you know s s high protein could also benefit uh, storage of fat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
let's zoom in a little bit on the soy isoflavones themselves or phytoestrogens. So what what are what are they and and how how are they different to estrogen? Yeah, so they're you know they're diphenolic compounds and um they really have a very very wide distribution in nature so um tiny tiny negligible amounts are found in you know fruits and vegetables and beans but the only commonly consumed food red clover as well it's not a food of course but they're the only commonly consumed food that contains what i consider to be physiologically physiologically relevant amounts is soybean and soy foods. Um, so you so in Japan, for example, typical isoflavone intake among older men and women is about 30 to 40 milligrams per day. In the U.S., isoflavone intake is fewer than three milligrams per day. So as I said at the beginning, if you consume soy, your diet's pretty high in isoflavones. If you don't, it's almost devoid of isoflavones. So these isoflavones, you know, in some ways have a chemical structure similar to the hormone estrogen. So they bind to estrogen receptors. And uh, for a long time, we only recognized the, the existence of one estrogen receptor, now called estrogen receptor alpha. And so isoflavones were considered to be relatively weak estrogens based on binding to that original estrogen receptor. 1996, it was determined or discovered that there was a second estrogen receptor. Isoflavones have more affinity for that second receptor, estrogen receptor beta, and that's potentially important. So estrogen binds with equal affinity to both uh, estrogen receptors. Isoflavones like estrogen receptor beta a lot more than estrogen receptor alpha. And when you activate estrogen receptor beta, it tends to have an anti-proliferative effect. When you bind to estrogen receptor alpha, it has more of a proliferative effect. So some, it's often thought that um, binding to estrogen receptor beta can actually inhibit the effects of compounds that bind to estrogen receptor alpha. So it's a, it's a little bit of a complicated uh, topic, but that's, so at the molecular level, you see that isoflavones uh, can be differentiated from estrogen because of the way they their preference for binding to each of these two receptors. But you know, to be to be honest, I when I make conclusions about um, the actions of isoflavones, I always just rely on the clinical data because you know I mentioned in 1996 we identified or discovered another estrogen receptor. You know, 20 years from now or tomorrow, we may find that there's a third estrogen receptor somewhere, and there's there sort of actually is already. Uh, and so our understanding of what happens at the molecular levels of isoflavones may vary a lot. So what you want to rely on is a, is a clinical finding. So does do isoflavones uh, increase breast cell proliferation, you know, in women? So if you take a biopsy before and after exposure to soy isoflavones, does cell proliferation increase? It doesn't, whereas if you guess, give combined hormone therapy, estrogen plus progesterone, within just 10 weeks, you can get, you know, a tenfold increase in cell proliferation. So I like to rely uh, ex almost exclusively on the clinical data for, my, for when I'm forming opinions about the effects of soy foods. How are the these phytoestrogens in soy different to, say, the phytoestrogens um, lignans in flax seeds, for example, they, they often come up in this conversation as well. 
Yeah, their their structures are, are very different. Um, but again, I I don't think that the um, the lignans are nearly as potent as um, the isoflavones are in soy. I tend not. I I really focus entirely on isoflavones in soy, and I it drives me crazy a little bit when you when people speak outside their area of expertise. So. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But let me make one other point about, you know, when people sometimes refer to isoflavones as sort of weak estrogens. First, I think that's a mischaracterization. But second, you know, if they're that weak, then it's difficult to suggest that they may have benefits, right? I mean, you, you have to have a, a, a certain potency in order to have a benefit, exert a benefit, just like you have to have a certain potency if you think you, you might cause a harmful effect. The other point is that while they have, um, in some sense, they are, certainly they bind to the estrogen receptor less well. So what's referred to as a relative binding affinity is lower than it is for estrogen. But if you're consuming soy foods, the concentration of isoflavones in your blood is a thousandfold higher than it is of the hormone estrogen. So even though you could refer to them as weaker, you know, because the concentration is so high, you can certainly propose that they're going to have a physiological effect. Do they increase levels of estrogen in the body? Absolutely not. I mean, that's that's okay. that's that was shown in a meta-analysis by Hooper and colleagues published in 2009. And um, I've been looking at some of the data since then, and, and it's very consistent. There's no effect on estrogen levels. That doesn't mean isoflavones can't exert an estrogen effect independent of, you know, the hormone estrogen, but they actually don't raise estrogen levels. There's, I guess, this general idea out there that, that something that exerts an estrogenic effect is automatically negative. Do you, do you think there is an oversimplification of, of estrogen and its role in the body? Well, of course, because estrogen maybe, you know, first of all, men make estrogen just like women do. And older men actually make more estrogen than older women do, um, something that's often not recognized, which is why when you're looking at the effects of soy in men, you want to look at both testosterone and estrogen level. But estrogen has a lot of uh, benefits. It may be important for, you know, cognitive function. It may, you know, you know, hormone therapy is probably reduces risk of fractures, increases bone mineral density. Obviously, hot, uh, it, it, taking estrogen uh, alleviates hot flashes in menopausal women. So, you know, it has it has benefits and potentially is potentially harmful for, um, for example, estrogen increases risk of uh, endometrial cancer. And that's why if a woman has a uterus, you have to take progesterone with it because it'll inhibit the effects of, of estrogen. Yeah. So you have to look at each individual outcome in relation to soy or isoflavone. So um, <clears throat> I'm not, for example, so, uh, you know, there's some data suggest that isoflavones improve memory, uh, alleviate hot flashes, but the trials that have looked at the effects of isoflavones on bone mineral density have been very disappointing. So there were um, there were a lot of short-term studies showing an effect on 
markers of bone turnover or markers of absorption and formation. So very encouraging. I was very excited about the potential for soy to reduce risk of fractures. And there are a couple observational studies that suggest that the case. That's the case. But then four large clinical trials, two to three years in duration, did not show benefits of isoflavones. If we're thinking about the bioactive soy isoflavones, though, um, potentially having some some benefit, I'm, I'm of the understanding that as you process soy, um, usually that means that the soy isoflavone content actually goes down, which is um, the opposite, I think, of what some people think. They, they sort of think of a soy protein isolate or perhaps a TVP as a very concentrated source of soy isoflavone. So perhaps you can talk to the amount of soy isoflavones in, in different sort of common soy foods. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And you're right. It, it, I think people, people often uh, get it 180 degrees wrong. Um, so in a traditional soy food like tofu, soybeans, edamame, there are approximately three to four gram, three to four milligrams of isoflavones per gram of protein. So if you think of a cup of soy milk as having, let's say seven grams of protein, eight grams of protein, then you can estimate isoflavone content pretty well. So it'd be seven or eight times three and a half, about 25 milligrams. So I like to think of a serving of soy as providing about 25 milligrams of isoflavones. I mentioned before that in Japan, typical isoflavone intake among older men and women is about 40 milligrams per day. So that'd be about one and a half servings per day on average. Now, of course, you have at the higher end of the spectrum, you have people consuming two and three servings a day, but the average is about one and a half. So it's about three to four milligrams of isoflavones per gram of protein. Whereas in these more concentrated sources of protein, uh, such as soy protein isolate and soy protein concentrate. By definition, they're 90% protein and 65% protein. So you take the bean, in the case of the isolate, you take the bean, you get rid of the uh, the fiber, for the most part, the carbohydrate and the fat, you're left mostly with the protein. With the concentrate, it's about 65% protein. So those products, when they're made in the typical way, um, end up having about maybe 10 to 20% of the isoflavone content that you would find in a traditional soy food when expressed on a milligram per gram protein basis. So if you're consuming eight grams of soy protein isolate, in most instances, you know, you, you may only be getting geez, anywhere from two to you know, maybe wouldn't even be eight in most instances, but let's say two to eight milligrams of isoflavones. If you're consuming eight grams of soy protein isolate, if you're consuming eight grams of uh, protein from soy milk, you're getting about 25. So the, and what you often see, and you, you reference this or alluded to it, is you often see people saying when they're writing about the concerns about isoflavones, they'll say, well, consuming soy foods is okay but stay away from the concentrated sources like soy protein, concentrated and soy protein isolate. And those are the ones that are actually low in isoflavone. So the Impossible Burger has two milligrams of isoflavones, you know, which is nothing. I mean, you know, there's 25 milligrams in a cup of soy milk. So if for whatever reason you 
Um, we're concerned about isoflavones. And again, I don't think there's any reason to be that the human day are very supportive of safety. The FDA reached that conclusion. The European Food Safety Authority reached that conclusion. Um, but if you are concerned about isoflavones, what you would actually want to eat are these products made with these concentrated sources of, of protein. So I look at those foods primarily as sources of protein. Now, the clinical, many of the clinical studies, uh, in fact, almost all of them, <laughs> actually have used the soy protein isolate and concentrate because in a Western population, if you're doing a six-month study, it's difficult to ask someone to consume two servings of tofu per day who is not used to eating that type of food. Whereas with the soy protein isolate, you can put it in a beverage you know, add it to orange juice or any other beverage. You can actually use it to, to bake with. And then you can take a protein like whey or casein as a control protein. So the participants won't know which which food they're consuming. If you're eating tofu, you're almost certainly not going to be blinded. You're going to know you're eating tofu. So most of the clinical work has been done with the concentrated sources of soy protein. And those are the products that have shown a reduction in LDL cholesterol levels. So, um, you know, I again, if you're looking for isoflavones, you go to traditional soy foods. If you're only concerned about protein, you can eat the traditional foods or the, the foods like the Impossible Burger. Where does TVP fall? That actually is, yeah, that's soy flour, and that would be rich in isoflavones because that, if you're looking at TVP made from uh, soy flour, which is 50% um, uh, protein, that's really just a, a defatted product, and that would be a product that would have a lot of isoflavones. Just remind folks, so what's what would you say is the safe upper limit of soy isoflavone intake per day? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that. So in free-living populations in, in, let's say, Shanghai is a really high soy-consuming region within China. Uh, I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that not all regions in China actually consumes much soy. I mean, some consume almost no soy. It's very heterogeneous in terms of their their dietary uh, pattern. But Shanghai is a you know obviously an urban area, very high soy soy consuming population. Um, they're consuming about forty milligrams, thirty five to forty milligrams on average. But um, there is a segment of the population like. 10% of the population that's consuming about 100 milligrams of isoflavones per day, which is about four servings of traditional soy foods. So my um, my basis for the limiting isoflavone upper limit is 100 milligrams per day for two reasons. One, um, there's no historical precedent for consuming more than that, you know, based from J Japanese population or, or Chinese population. Second, if you're getting 100 milligrams of isoflavones from soy foods, it means you're consuming at least four servings per day. And there's you you don't want to consume more than four servings of any. I mean, anything. It, no one would say you should consume more servings, more than four servings of broccoli or kale. Everybody loves kale. It's a great, healthful food. But, you don't. you know, you want to you want to consume some some kale, a variety of different vegetables. So it, my upper limit is not based on safety concerns. It's based on the dietetic principles of, you know, variation and moderation. 
And, and, and when you look at the clinical studies, some of them, had, like there was a bone study from Taiwan, 300 milligrams of isoflavones for two years, no adverse effects. So you have data to show that isoflavone exposure beyond 100 milligrams is, is perfectly safe. But when you're thinking about a food, again, variety and moderation. Right. Okay. So 100 milligrams a day as a kind of general principle. I might put I might put a table into the show notes then that that shows for the different types of soy foods on a per serve basis the approximate amount of soy isoflavones and then people can get a, a feel for what that may, might look like uh, a day on their plate kind of thing. Um, I do think that there probably are some listeners, and I'm thinking mostly here of uh, males who are doing a lot of strength training and working out who are exceeding that um, by by some uh, amount, a fair amount in some cases, could, could be up at 200 milligrams or, or 300 milligrams. As you say, there is some data to suggest that that is not going to be an issue. But if, if someone is listening and thinking, gosh, Mark, I'm, I'm having much more than that um, in order to, to reach whatever protein target they're striving for, for, for their sort of performance goals or, or whatever. Um, is there any tests, blood tests or things that you would recommend they could go and look at if they wanted to be sure that it wasn't having a, a deleterious effect on their health? No, not, not really. I mean, cause I, I really have, would have no idea. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you could look at testosterone levels, but again, in the clinical studies, there's there's no effect. But but I I would push back on just something you you said, which is that you know if you think of a weightlifter, like I take a lot of protein because I'm an older individual and I do weightlift. I'm trying to you know keep as much muscle mass as I can. So I I eat a pretty high protein diet, and and certainly in the days that I'm uh, weightlifting, it's it's really high. But if you're consuming Soy protein, which is what a lot of these folks might be do might be doing uh, to get their protein boost, it's going to be in the form of soy protein isolate, which is really going to be low in isoflavone. So if you're if they're consuming fifty, you know, even if they're consuming fifty grams of soy protein per day, they're from the isolate. They're not going to be getting you know an excessive amount of isoflavones at all, and presumably they're getting. 50 gram, you know, if they're trying to conceive with the typical recommendations, 1.6 grams protein per kilogram body weight. So, you know, maybe they're consuming 140 grams of protein per day. They could get 50 from soy, 50 from whey and 50 from a mixture of, you know, different protein sources. So I, I'm, I don't really think it's a, a concern at all. I've had, um, quite a few different conversations on kind of longevity uh, and and sarcopenia and osteoporosis, which I mentioned before, and discussions around like how much protein should we have, how much is enough, what's optimal, is increasing our protein intake, is it benefiting some aspects of health but then coming at the cost of longevity. And I will say my view of this is one that is evolving and it's based on what I know today and it could change. Um, but I guess what are some of the things that I think are most clear? So I would, I would say that from a, a body composition strength point of view, it's pretty clear that you, you do want to consume 1.6 grams per kilogram or 
possibly a little bit more um, if it's plant protein. Um, however, consuming that amount and not doing the resistance training and focusing on the volume and whatnot isn't going to deliver magic uh, muscle sort of magically out of nowhere. So you have to have the stimulus there, but then that 1.6 grams or a little bit higher does seem to be optimal if that's your goal. Um, now there's some debate around, okay, well, if someone's not looking to absolutely optimize their, their sort of muscle and body composition, how much do they need? And um, some folks argue that the RDA is right. Some argue that it's more around 1.2 grams per kilo. Um, all I can say on that is it probably doesn't matter too much because the average person is getting about 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilogram anyway, including vegetarians usually um, or plant-based folks. So it might be a little bit of a moot point. Um, so I think targeting that 1.2, 1.3 grams along with an active lifestyle as a minimum, you know, for someone who's maybe not trying to absolutely optimize body composition, seems like a sort of fair position. Um Again, with exercise being the most important factor. Um, and then I think source is important. Mm -hmm. And there are different views out there, but I think it's pretty clear that if you look at the chronic diseases that are affecting people, particularly cardiovascular disease, um, that there's huge benefits by eating less animal protein, more plant protein. And this is actually where I do like the slightly higher protein intake because we know when you get to a slightly higher protein intake, there doesn't seem to be any difference between animal protein and plant protein from a hypertrophy strength point of view. Um, kind of having the high total protein intake seems to negate any um, differences in, in the outcomes there. Um, so leaning more into tofu and tempeh and beans and and those foods and um beans we'll come back to that uh, <laughs> i know you we we, we we mentioned that earlier but but eating more of those foods in general um and of course prioritizing the sort of high protein plant-based foods um that are very protein rich on a per calorie basis maybe we can go through that um i think that when you sort of put all that information together, it sort of looks something like this. You know, consume at least 1.2 grams per kilogram. If your goal is body composition and strength and you're working out really hard and you want to recover and you want your body to adapt, get it north of 1.6 grams per kilogram and ideally eat more plant protein, less animal protein and do that to whatever extent feels right for you based on um, your circumstances and, and what you value. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.